You may be seated. We've been working our way through Hebrews, and we return this week, picking up in Hebrews chapter 3. You'll recall last week in Hebrews chapter 2 specifically, we looked at the fact that, that Jesus, over these last two weeks actually, was greater than the angels. And today we're going to turn our attention from that to the fact that Jesus is not just greater than the angels, he's also greater than Moses specifically. And as we look at this passage in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, I want to kind of cover three basic points that I see there. One is looking at who we are. Secondly, we'll look at what we should do. And then finally, why we should do it. So bear in mind these three things as I read to you from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And remember that this is the inspired word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for the reminders it gives to us of the preeminence of Christ. May we never grow weary of that truth, how great Christ is. May we see it more clearly, more truly, more intimately, and more deeply in our soul. Know the fact of the greatness of the exalted Christ, our Savior who has died for us. Speak to us now. We pray that you would clear away whatever brush stands in the way of our hearts, whatever pride might be there, whatever sin might be there in our heart, whatever it might be that would keep us from hearing your word. We pray that you would would clear that away by your hand, that we might clearly receive your word. Speak to us today through your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. There's, there's a story I heard once back when I was in college. I like to think that it's true. It probably isn't. But let's pretend it is, all right? goes that there was a student taking a college class. It was at a big state university. It was one of those classes that has like 500 people in the class. And so there's no way that the professor could possibly know each person individually. It's a big lecture class. They come to the auditorium. And all semester long, they just sit there and don't really interact with the professor much at all. There might be a handful of students in the class that actually get to know them through office hours and such. But, but most of the students in the class don't really know the professor. The professor doesn't really know them. Well, 
it got to be time for the final exam. And all the students showed up for the exam and they started working on it. And what the teacher said they were to do was to work on the exam and he would give them a warning when there was 10 minutes left and he'd give them another warning when there was five minutes left, another warning when there was one minute left and then he would tell them when they needed to stop and turn in their exams. And they were to come forward and put the exams down on a pile on the floor of the stage in the front of the auditorium. Well, students throughout the time got done early, of course. You know, quick ones got done, came up, put it done. He announces 10 minutes remaining. A little time goes on. Uh, five minutes remaining. One minute remaining. At this point, about half the students are done. There's the rest of them feverishly working to get done. And he says, finally, time is up. Put down your pencils. Turn in your exams. At which time all the students came forward and put their exams in the pile on the on the stage, all of them except for one student who was sitting in the front row, and he just kept feverishly writing away at his exam. Well, the professor didn't notice this at first, but then he noticed it. He said, excuse me, son, it's time to turn in your exam. He just kept writing, 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 writing. He said, son, time is up. You need to turn in the exam now. Writing, 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 writing. This went on for about two minutes. The professor getting more and more enraged. And finally, the guy got done, put down his pencil, got up, and came up to put the exam in the pile. And the professor confronted him. He says, you can't put that in there. You, you worked past the time that you were supposed to work. You disobeyed my authority. You broke my rules. And you did not do what you were supposed to do. And the student seemed a little miffed at the professor. He says, oh, Yeah. And the professor says, somewhat taken aback, yeah. The student says, do you know who I am? The professor says, I don't care who you are. He says, you don't know who I am? And the professor says, I don't care who you are. He says, good. And he picks up the exam pile, puts his test in the middle, puts it down, and walks out. You see... The professor thought when he asked, do you know who I am, of course, he was appealing to some, some special status he'd have because of his identity. That's not what he was doing at all. But it is a reality, isn't it, in our world, that there are times that your identity brings you special benefits. The status of who you are confers upon you certain rights, certain benefits that others don't have. Maybe they're benefits that you haven't even earned, but just by the mere identity that you have, you get those benefits. We talked about it some last week, about the fact that we benefit from the sufferings of Christ Jesus. And the first benefit we mentioned, you'll recall, is that our identity has changed. And here in Hebrews 3, the author picks up from that same idea and makes that same point. He begins with who we are. And he says, therefore, in light of what we've just said in chapter 2, holy brothers. If you'll recall last week, we made this point, didn't we, that, that we are holy in Christ Jesus. Back in verse 11 of chapter 2, it said, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. 
that idea of being sanctified is being made holy. We are made holy by Christ. His righteousness clothes us. Though we are, are sinful, though we are red as scarlet, his righteousness makes us white as snow. We are holy in the eyes of God because of Christ. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are holy in Christ Jesus. We're not just holy though. Remember how we said last week we are also made brothers with Christ. Uh, In verses 11 through 13 of chapter 2 back there he said that is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers and then I will tell of your name to my brothers he goes on I'll put my trust in them behold I and the children God has given me he makes this point that we are brothers now there's two things that I want to explain about this term brothers first of all we need to understand that the way the Greek works that that this is based on uh, the the word that stands behind this shouldn't just be taken as a masculine term the way a, a plural term worked if it was a male and a female that were your siblings, you would use this term. Uh, you know, so, so we shouldn't necessarily just read it as brothers, even though that is what it works, but brothers and sisters. It, it is encompassing both male and female. It's not just talking to the men here. We're talking brothers and sisters. Jesus calls us his siblings. And perhaps that might be a better, a better translation just for our understanding is to say he's called us siblings. That's what he's called us, his brothers and sisters. And secondly, we need to understand that it's not just talking about the universal brotherhood of man here, that somehow we are all brothers and sisters as creatures. Certainly that is true in one sense. We are all brothers and sisters because we are all created by God. We are all descendants from Adam. There are those senses in which we are all related, but it's not talking just about that truth. It's talking about a deeper truth. It's talking about the fact that we are united with Christ, by his spirit, by the grace of God, through faith, and in that sense, we are made to be brothers and sisters with him, and thus with each other as well. And so we have a special relationship here with him. Our identity has been changed. We are holy brothers, as it says. So that's what we already kind of covered last week by way of review. I mentioned here, but he goes a little bit further here in chapter 3. He doesn't just say, holy brothers. He says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. When he says we have a heavenly calling, it's this in two different senses, really. We are called from heaven, and we are called to heaven. You know, I remember back when I was a little child, we'd go out and play. It seemed like we played outside far more then than children today do. Uh, we would go out during the summer especially and, and just play all day long, it seemed. We'd, we'd play in the neighborhood down some way. We'd play baseball all day or soccer all day or whatever it would be. And it would come to be dinner time. And the same thing would happen for all of us at dinner time. Our, our mother would come out on the front porch of the home And in my case, my mom would yell, Peter! At the top of her lungs. And I'd be, you know, four, five, six houses away this way or that way or back in the field over there. It didn't really matter where I was. I would hear her voice calling me home. 
It was a call that was coming from my home, and it was calling me to my home. And that is very much the same way as our heavenly calling is. It is a calling from heaven, from the voice of God. Yet it is calling us to heaven also. It is the very, very voice of God calling from heaven. Much the same, we remember, with the transfiguration or, or with the baptism of Christ Jesus. Both these times, the, this voice bellowed out of the clouds, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And just as surely God's voice has called out to us through his word and through the gospel that has been proclaimed to us, and if we are believers in Christ, it is the very voice of God that our hearts have heard and responded to as he calls us from heaven to heaven. And we are reminded that our identity has changed. That's what the author here is trying to remind his audience. These Hebrew believers who are tempted to turn back to Judaism, that are tempted to say the persecution is too hard. I, I just want to go back. He says, no, you, you are a new person. You are a different person. That is no longer your identity. You need to trust in Christ. They shouldn't go back and and. We need to know that our identity has changed too. And so what what impact does that have on us? What should we do? Well, we should do the same thing that he tells them to do. That's our second point. Still in verse 1, we should consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, when I say consider Jesus, I I don't mean just give cursory glances to Jesus. I don't mean just kind of notice him and move on. No, the the idea behind this word consider is is to dwell upon, think deeply about, to meditate upon Jesus. You know, the story goes that Napoleon, the great general Napoleon, when he would be entering into battle, would call his generals into his tent the night before the battle so that they could look him in his eyes and see the confidence that he had, see the certainty of victory that he possessed, that they could look in his face and see that and have their confidence bolstered as they went into battle. And so too, when we read here that we are to consider Jesus, what the writer is saying to us is that we are to look into the face of Jesus. And as we look into the face of Jesus, we will see the eyes that have wept for us. We will see the brow that bled under the weight of the crown of thorns. We will see the mouth that has smiled at us as he has called us friends and brothers and his beloved. Consider Jesus. As the hymnist said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look 
full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do we do this? Do you do this? Do I do this? Do do we really do this? How much time do we spend considering Jesus, considering who he really was, considering what he really did? I mean, we do that on Sunday mornings. We gather here, certainly. We give him an hour of our week, and that's good. We should do that for sure. But how much of the rest of our week do we spend considering Jesus? Are you convicted at that thought? I know I am. I I, I guess I, I spend more than some people, I'm sure. But do I spend enough time considering Jesus? He, he should really dominate my thoughts all the time. There really shouldn't be passing moments where I lose track of Jesus. He should, he should dominate my entire thought life. Each and every day, each and every hour, really each and every moment should be lived in light of Christ Jesus. I need to consider him. And as I consider him, the question becomes, what, what am I considering? Who, who is this Jesus that I am considering? Well, still in verse 1, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle, in this sense, it's kind of a, a different term. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is referred to as an apostle. We usually think, don't we, of, of the apostles being the 12, or, or maybe Paul added to that Number and, and there's a technical sense in which apostles use, but but apostle can be used in a more general sense, in which it just means one who is sent as a representative, essentially. Uh, in in a general sense, when it is used this way, what it what it means is it's one who is sent, and they're they're sent on a task representing the one who has sent them, and they are equipped by the one who has sent them to complete the task for which they've been sent. Jesus nowhere else is called an apostle, but but we do see in John 20, he says this. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And the verb that stands behind that, send, is is a cognate of, of the word apostle. It's still, it's related together. It's the same idea. He sends just as he has been sent by the father he is an apostle of god in that sense in that he represents god he brings the message of god and he is equipped by god to bring that message and so it is that he represents god to god's people but he's not just an apostle we see here. he's also called a high priest and what does a high priest do but represent god's people to God, right? We, we learned that throughout Leviticus when we studied that, that, that he offers these sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. He offers them up to God so that they might be made right before God, that they might have their sins forgiven. And so it is that Jesus, too, makes intercession for us. He is a high priest. He's made intercession for us on the cross, and he makes intercession for us through his prayers even right now as he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is praying for us even right now, making intercession for us. He is faithful to that end. That's what we see in verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. You see, it's interesting. Moses is really the only Old Testament figure who performed both of these functions. The high priestly function of of representing the people before God, but at the same time the the apostolic function of representing God 
to his people. Moses was this mediator in the Old Testament that pointed us forward to Christ, who is the great mediator, the true mediator, the ultimate mediator. And so we need to consider Jesus. Now, it's easy to say that that non-believers need to think about this message. They need to be confronted with it. And if you today don't trust in Christ, if you don't call him your Savior, then you need to consider Jesus. You need to consider his claims. And ultimately, I, I saw this quote from somebody just this morning, actually. What, what is really the crucial matter is not so much whether you like his teachings or not, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, it doesn't really matter that you don't like his teachings. He is God Almighty. And you need to yield to him. You need to bow the knee to him. You need to trust in him. If he did not rise from the dead, then reject him. We should all reject him if he didn't rise from the dead. Because his teachings, no matter how wonderful we might think they are, are really worthless if he did not rise from the dead as he said he would. Consider Jesus. But even if you are a believer today, and I hope most of us who are here count ourselves in that number, we too need to consider Jesus more commonly, more more often, more deeply, for we take him for granted. But if we do consider him, it will continually change us. It will transform us. It will make us more into his likeness. Do you want to be more holy tomorrow than you are today? And more holy today than you were yesterday? Do you you want that? Do you really want that? As you consider your own life, do you have a desire to grow in holiness? If not, then you might want to question whether you are amongst that number who knows Christ Jesus, who has truly been forgiven, who knows his grace, who has experienced his grace. You need to consider Jesus. Well, finally, why why do we do this? Why should we do this? And the rest of the passage really kind of lays out this truth. In verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, for some of us, the the meaning might be lost on us. I mean, we know Moses is an important figure in the Old Testament. We know that he did a lot of great things. We perhaps know the stories about how uh, he did these mighty works like we saw today in the Unison Scripture reading. He talked about uh, the, the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel when he delivered the people of God. Perhaps we know about that from reading our Bibles, from going to Sunday school, from seeing Charleston Heston. Uh, you know, I, wherever you got it, we might know that. But we really, I think, lack an understanding of the depth of, of the greatness of Moses, how highly he would have been esteemed to these Jewish recipients of this letter. You know, I, I want to read to you a passage from Numbers 12. If you want to, in your own Bibles, you can flip over there or you can just listen. But this is in Numbers 12, and it's a passage that helps us to better understand how Moses would have been seen. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses 
because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? You see, they're saying, you know, yeah, sure, God's spoken through Moses, but he's spoken through us too. We're, we're prophets too. We're important too. You know, we, we all have kind of that tendency in our hearts, don't we? We, we see somebody else who kind of is the big shot and we say, yeah, they're not really all that more important than us. And usually that's true. Usually we're all pretty much the same. But God hears them, and notice what happens here. The Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, or face to face, if you will. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. You see, Moses holds a very special place in the eyes of God. And so too in the eyes of the people of God. We need to understand that. We need to understand what happens after that actually. Miriam's struck with, with leprosy. She's put out of the camp and, and it looks bad for her until Moses intercedes for her. And what a wonderful picture that is, isn't it? Of Moses interceding for his sibling who has sinned. And through his intercession, the sibling is forgiven by God and brought back into the people of God. That's a picture of what Christ has done for us. We, his siblings, have been forgiven, not because we deserve forgiveness, but because he has interceded on our behalf. And so we are brought back into the fold as the people of God, forgiven because of his intercession. Moses is but a a shadow, a picture, a type, pointing us forward to Christ, who is the one greater than Moses. That's why verse 3 says he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus says in John 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to your father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. He says basically that, that you look to the law, and the law accuses you it does says if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote of me says Moses writings were pointing forward to Christ it was him that he was pointing to it one example of this is in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 where Moses writes the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is him you shall listen to this is Jesus of course whom he is speaking of And as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. That is the glory that is to be given to Jesus. You see, he's saying Jesus is to Moses as the builder is to the house. And then in verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so he pushes it one step further. Jesus is to Moses as the builder is to the house, as God is to all things. 
Because he is the creator, the builder of all things. But we remember back from Hebrews 1 that it is Christ, the Son, through whom and by whom all things were built. And so he is making a claim here that Jesus is to be greatly honored because Jesus is God. And he is grateful, greater. Verse 5, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. Moses was faithful, not perfect, but faithful. And so too we are called to faithfulness. We need to be faithful. There are times we will fail. We will be imperfect in our faithfulness. But Christ is faithful. Over God's house as a son, verse 6 tells us. There's a difference, isn't there, between a servant and a son. A servant might have a lot of latitude. I, I don't know if you watched the show Downton Abbey. You know, there's servants in the house. Uh, this big, big, uh, big mansion with with many servants living on this estate. And some of them have, have wide-ranging liberties and latitude that is given to them. They, they basically run the household. They can do just about whatever they want, but they couldn't make a decision like they're going to sell the house or something like that. They're just servants. But a son, a son has rights of ownership. That's what Christ is. He is a son. He is the one who owns us. He is the one who makes intercession for us. He is the one and only mediator, as we said before. There is one God and there is one mediator mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing it is. As he makes mediation, makes intercession for us. I saw a quote just last night from Robert Murray McShane. He said, I thought this was beautiful. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What a wonderful truth. Does that bolster you with confidence to know that the The Son of God is praying for you. And if he is for us, who could be against us? And what matter could that make? What difference could it make? Why would we ever trust in any other? Why would we turn to any other idol? When we have the very Son of God, we must cling to him in confidence and hope. That's what verse 6 says. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We don't need to be perfect, but we need to hold fast to Christ Jesus. He is our confidence. He is our hope. We don't boast in our deeds. We boast in him. As Paul says in Galatians 6, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the point of the matter for these Hebrew believers is that they must not turn back to a lesser covenant with a lesser mediator, no matter how great that mediator might have been. And similarly for us, we must not depend on anything other than Christ Jesus. Don't depend on your own faithfulness. Don't depend on your own holiness because it will always fall short. 
No matter how great you are, no matter how much better you are than your neighbor, your friend, or anybody else, you are still a sinner. You still deserve the righteous wrath of God. And Christ has taken that for you. Trust in him. As holy brothers with a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is greater than even Moses. Please pray with me. Our Lord, you are a great and gracious God. We can hardly fathom how great the debt was that Christ Jesus paid for us. We hardly understand how heinous our own sin is, but we pray that you would help us to see it so that we might better understand your grace. As we see the depth of our depravity and how little we deserve, we will gain an appreciation for how much we have in Christ. We will see that he indeed paid it all for us. There is nothing for us left to pay. We are made righteous before the throne of God. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice in the fact that Jesus has paid it all. We can rejoice in the fact that we are now holy brothers with a heavenly calling. And we can rejoice in the goodness and grace of God Almighty. In the name of Christ Jesus our Lord.